The New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. Although there's a great variety of ghost stories out there, there is a basic formula that you can apply to most classics of the genre. Key texts typically feature three elements. One, a person isolated and alone. Two, a distant, unfamiliar location. Three, the discovery of a secret. These are the elements that come together to create those key emotions a ghost story needs to evoke. The fear that comes from being vulnerable. The unease of being taken from a familiar place to some are unfamiliar. And then there's the gradual building of suspense as some discovery moves inevitably towards a devastating climax. We don't know exactly when it will hit, but instinct will tell us when we're close. Ghost stories aren't often discussed as being escapist, but there's a reason why so many take place in distant, off-the-beaten-track places, far enough away from where most of us spend our lives. We get to feel the thrills and chills from a safe, comfortable distance, disconnected from our everyday world. We can indulge our darkest thoughts and most morbid curiosities while staying in complete control. We can even feel heroic. We're putting ourselves through something we know may be frightening, that has the potential to terrify us. And let's not forget that bonus thrill of seeing justice done, or simply the pleasure of seeing some smart alec get cut down to size. Ghost stories are a great place to see the wicked righteously punished for their sins, or someone who's too rich or too clever or too smug take one right on the nose. Of course, should it ever get to be too much, we can turn to friends and family for reassurance and comfort. No matter how bad it gets, we can always put the book down or turn off the TV. We have the comfort of always being able to turn the light back on. Ghost stories take us away from the horrors of the everyday. They take us away from the real world, where crooks and criminals high and low escape unpunished, where the crooked, corrupt and arrogant prosper from their actions and face few consequences. They take us away from the horrors that exist all around us near where we live, sometimes behind closed doors, but just as often in the open where anyone can see, but we of course prefer not to. Horrors that we overlook because they're not our problem, because they have nothing to do with us, and because they're for someone else to sort out. Real terror happens not in strange locations, nor does it happen in isolation. If you felt alone, were you in the middle of nowhere? Or were you at home, or at work, or in a public place, where crowds of people sweep by every day? Isolation is just not a prerequisite for being isolated, and afraid, and vulnerable. And isn't that even more terrifying? That with all the apparent security around us, the presence of the many, the familiarity of the usual, and just the basic mundane lack of mystery of normal life, and knowing none of that would make the slightest difference, it would not keep you safe. We all know deep down that real horror is never truly far away. No wonder we find the need to escape. David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we dig into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. The 
if we take the stance that supernatural experiences are possible, then one thing I think my new ghost stories prove is that they really can happen to anyone. There's nothing outwardly unique about the people I've spoken to over the years. There's usually nothing particularly unique about the lives they lead. They're just ordinary people, caught up in events they at best can only partially understand. And if you don't think that supernatural experiences are possible, I don't think there's any greater reason for you to feel more safe or more comfortable. All that means is that there's no abnormal, unexplained trigger that causes what they experience. Because if it's not supernatural and it's not a lie, then it's all in the mind, where the experience feels real, and the consequences can be just as damaging. We all share similar vulnerabilities. If something can happen to one of us, the likelihood is that under similar conditions, it could happen to any of us. A healthy scepticism would offer no protection. Mental health is right at the centre of today's story, and there's no question that what the subject experiences is directly related to their condition and their deterioration. There may be some question as to whether all they experience is exclusively caused by their condition, or because their condition allowed them to witness things that would otherwise be hidden from most of us. I can't answer that, and I will leave it for others to speculate. This is a case where belief or scepticism is much less important. The pain is real. The subject's condition is real. This story touches on issues that are real, like the scarce availability of mental health treatments, and the stigma we attach to expressing how we really feel. Because of its length, I've divided this story into two parts, with the second available shortly after the first. Normally I take the time to disguise the locations where new ghost stories take place, as part of my efforts to keep the identity of each subject confidential. In this case, however, I felt it was important to not change the name of one of the key locations, because it seemed just too important to the story, and I included it with the subject's permission. Millions of people pass through this location every year, millions of anonymous faces, many no doubt happy and content, but also many concealing how they truly feel. To me, this location, the sheer tide of people who move through it every day, Every time I think of it, I think of how many people suffer in silence, and how invisible we all become once we're part of a crowd. Rather than begin this episode asking you to consider whether these events are real or not, as I normally do, I think it's more valuable to consider the consequences of cutting ourselves off, and the importance of seeking support when times are tough, rather than risk staying silent. I present for you now New Ghost Stories Case Number 65. Another Face in the Crowd the following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. The NHS reeks of decay. Sickness surrounds you the moment you enter any surgery. And I don't just mean the people who look sick anyway, but the pockmarked walls, peeling wallpaper, the beige 1970s colours, and then there's the sun-faded posters and chipped, faded floor tiles. No wonder people don't want to come to their doctor. It isn't as if the staff are even polite to you. You're just one more burden on their overburdened day. Only desperate times would direct you to such desperate places. The patients I see don't look so desperate, just grey, ghostly and forlorn. I'm surrounded mostly by old folk, rising to the nurse's call either with quiet faux dignity, or shuffling and bent forward using their partners for support. 
Besides the olds, there's a young mother who occasionally looks up from a crumpled magazine to shriek at her children. She's probably in her twenties, but looks tired, awful, far older. Only a perfectly postured Sikh offers any colour. He's putting a brave face on it, looking like he's not one of these people, like he shouldn't really be here. Probably a first visit, maybe just a simple migraine, pain in his back or mild skin rash. Something simple. But that's not me. I am one of these people, the needy and the helpless, one of society's burdens. It's always been hard to accept that. You go through life presenting one face to the world, trying in some small way to fit in. To be an individual, yet also be part of what goes on around you. To be accepted as part of a whole. I've tried, God knows I've tried. Tried to present a me I could live with and present to the world, a me that could be liked and respected and others would want to be with. But it's all been a facade, a facade that's taken years to create. Those who know me now, and that's not many, probably wouldn't recognise the me of five years ago, definitely not the me of ten years ago. Those were different me's, cast aside, improved, rewritten. The problems, the angst, the neuroses, the doubt, the self-loathing, they still remained. They were just more buried. I played confident, played calm, played rational, played smart. It was just inside that I was falling apart. It wasn't even a good facade. I could only perform it with people I saw every day. It crumbled around new faces and new situations. You see, that's my problem. People terrify me. It's not rational, I know that, and I've tried to manage it, worked so hard to manage it. I've tried to put aside the fear, taught myself around, but it's never gone away. You can never tell fear to leave you alone and behave, it just doesn't work like that. You see, there's an instinctual fear of persecution. When I meet someone new, whether it's at work, at a bar, or behind a counter, I will assume that that person dislikes me, resents my presence, thinks I'm ugly, stupid, fat, dumb, boring, or whatever. I'll persecute myself at the slightest provocation, a glance away and no laugh at an attempted joke, a scowl or a cold attitude. There are times when I force my way through and sometimes things go okay. But that's not enough, and as life has got more complicated, it's got harder, not easier. It's a problem that's affected me my whole life. This fear has created a deeply dysfunctional person, a person who instinctively withdraws, who doesn't know how to form relationships. Where I work, worked, we had quite a small team, but it's got quite large. There are new people, and these new people have been there half the time I've been there, and already they know more people in the office, have more friends at work, and see those people socially outside of work. That just doesn't happen with me. I don't know how to do it. I don't think you'll probably understand that. You'll probably take it for granted. The ability to just go up to someone and talk, to start a conversation to begin a relationship, even a romance. I'm like a ghost in that office, haunting the place, unseen and unnoticed and forgotten about. And it's not just being shy, it's so much worse than that. The relationships I do have exist only because of forced interaction. They exist because of working closely with certain people and there are certain parameters to those relationships. And because of these parameters, I can interact, have a defined reason to interact. And after time, these interactions get easier and the people I work closely with don't notice or forget that awkwardness. They get used to me and I get more used to them. But take me out of that environment and the act disintegrates. If I have to go to another floor, talk to another person less familiar, I put it off. Say to myself, I go up there in 10 minutes time, 20 minutes, at half past, at the turn of the hour. 
When I finally force myself over there, I creep up to them because I feel like I'm being a burden, a nuisance, a problem. Then my heart beats faster, sweat gathers on my forehead, my hands start to shake. I can't control it. Sometimes it's easier than others, but it never goes away, not really. Sometimes I'll be fine. I'll be doing alright when part of me tells myself that I've overstepped, flown too close to the sun. Then suddenly it hits me like a panic attack, as if I've gone too far and my body tells me to quit while I'm ahead. I get the shakes, start to sweat and stutter. Usually people are fine, nice, but it doesn't take much for me to pick up a signal, a glance, a hissed breath, and I feel like I'm being an imposition. I can interpret anything as a negative signal, it's instinctual, I just can't help it. I thought I got better as the years had gone by, but it's only that I've become better at developing coping mechanisms, better at creating the facade. I always carry a pen with me when I'm at work, but so that I always have something for my hands to do. It's not like I'm stupid, sometimes I know when I'm being ridiculous, when my mind is playing tricks on me. But I don't always know, and being aware doesn't make the feelings go away. Like when you're drunk and you're telling yourself not to be drunk, but you are drunk and you can't hide it. I do have friends, don't get me wrong, I'm not completely without hope. But I keep them at a distance, not deliberately, just instinctively. I even feel pressured with them. When I email my friends, I take care with every word. When I text message, I draft and redraft. I feel judged with every syllable and letter. Feeling constantly like you must prove yourself, it's hard work, it wears you down. It makes you feel like you're always living a lie. I've always been at my most comfortable when I'm alone. There's no pressure to be anything, to be anyone, to present any kind of facade. That's why I withdraw. So how did I find myself a regular of these grim surgeries and these grim surgery people? Because the facade fell apart, the cracks started to show and I just couldn't carry it off anymore. I started to fall apart and couldn't control it. I felt trapped, stuck with my life going nowhere, nothing changing, nothing ever changing. There used to be hope. Hope that I'd meet the right person, become confident, successful, find happiness, that these things would come true in time. But they won't, will they? Nothing just happens. Nothing ever changes. And I just couldn't go on pretending that they would or could any longer. These feelings have been building for... I don't know how long. I kept myself busy. Increasingly busy. But in those quiet moments, when I wasn't busy, when I wasn't doing one thing or another, the sadness, the despair, they creep up on me. I'd hide from it, find something to do, something to occupy myself, keep up the facade, keep up the pretense of being fine. But the feelings would still be there, lingering away and gathering. There's only so many distractions you can give yourself. Just gradually, bit by bit, it was becoming harder, harder to keep it together. With all my friends moving away and taking their lives in new directions, I was becoming unconsciously more emotionally demanding from the friends who I still saw more often, particularly the people within my work team. They were the only people I saw almost every day and felt safe around. I was unreasonably demanding of them. I wanted them to love, like and accept me, not that I let them know that. To them I was just normal, or as normal as I ever seemed. People do find me a bit eccentric. Of course they would. I was desperate for them to accept me. But we weren't close friends, we were just colleagues. This made my symptoms of self-persecution more acute. The slightest negative signal, real or imagined, and I'd suddenly find myself spiralling into despair. I was going on an emotional roller coaster in and out of every hour. It was ridiculous. I was all over the place for the stupidest of reasons. If I wasn't invited to a meeting, I would feel left out and excluded. If people in my team made social plans and didn't include me, I'd feel slighted. Even if none of their plans had anything to do with me, 
Their busy social lives, family lives, all the things they did without me made me feel jealous, dejected, outcast, and painfully lonely. I'd become an emotional child, a cripple. There was this lunchtime when we were all sat in the pub. It was almost the end of the year and people were making plans for Christmas, New Year and the weekend. And they all had plans, moving plans, wedding plans, holiday plans, family plans. But I had nothing, nothing to do then and nothing to do in the future. So when I was asked what I was up to and I had nothing to say, I made a joke about it. I can't even remember what the joke was, but it was about how I had nothing going on and they all laughed about it. They laughed too hard. They didn't mean to be cruel, I made the joke after all, but I was hurt. It just wasn't funny. I held on to my feelings until we left the pub and went back to the office. And when we got there I locked myself in the toilet and I burst into tears. I knew then that things couldn't go on like this, that there was a crack in my facade and that I couldn't cope any longer. At least that's what I thought. I forced myself to ring up my local doctors and make an appointment, but they couldn't see me for over a week. What could I do? I just had to wait. And in the meantime, I went back to work. I had to go in every day and pretend like everything was normal. But I was spiralling out of control. I spent every day like I wanted to explode. I was like a bottle with a cork in it. I was fine as long as the cork stayed in, but I would explode if I let it slip out. I could feel the pressure every second of every day. Every moment I was around people, it was beating under the surface. Suddenly the question, how are you, became the hardest question in the world. The truth was I needed my facade. It was the only thing I had. Without it, I had nothing. Just a sad, worthless, pointless life. But now it was too hard to keep up. What would they think of work if they knew I couldn't cope? There goes my promotion prospects. There goes any chance of me being respected in the office. I stewed in my juices for nine days. I kept the cork in place until that first time I walked into the surgery and went into Dr. Lund's office. I sat myself down and I just broke down into tears. It was about five minutes before I could get a straight sentence out. I was in pieces. I'd fallen apart. And you know what happened after that? I had to go back to work, clean myself up, wipe away the tears and pretend everything was normal again. It was torture. I was hanging by a thread. Dr. Lum was a good listener, better than I expected from a GP. After listening to me get it off my chest, we talked treatments and causes. Antidepressants came up, but I was resistant because I was worried about the side effects and just being on pills made me uncomfortable. The problem was that other treatments involved therapy. I wanted to do that, but this is the NHS. I'd have to go on the waiting list. Brilliant, isn't it? You've got to put yourself on hold until they can get around to you. You're finding it hard to get up in the morning. You're having these thoughts, these thoughts that tell you you'd be better off killing yourself, that you have no future, that you're done, end of the road, done. I was a walking corpse in the making, but you've got to put a lid on it, just casually put those thoughts aside for, oh, just about three to four months, 90 to 120 days, until they can fit you in. I went there for help. I went there for hope. And that's the best they could do. Hold on and we'll get around to you when we can. I was just about lucky. I only had two months to wait. God knows how I made it through. Christmas helped. It was a distraction, though it was hardly joyous. And I was hardly in a festive spirit. But the family are used to me being gloomy. Another coping mechanism. It's all such a joke that I'm a miserable dick. But it's not funny. What a horrible trap I made for myself. It was the same at work. Oh, you're always moaning, always complaining. My misery is a comedy act. All part of the fun. I had a few weeks of psychotherapy. Beside the depression, my therapist thought I might suffer from social anxiety. Doesn't sound very impressive, does it? If it was Asperger's or autism, people can understand that, can't they? 
they know that that's a serious problem. Social anxiety disorder sounds so flimsy like shyness dressed up and over-exaggerated by wet liberal crybabies. Unfortunately, that's as far as I got. After only a couple of sessions, my own therapist did himself in, took an overdose at home. Spies you with confidence, doesn't it, when even the psychologists can't look after their own problems. Another life lived and destroyed in secret. So I go back on the waiting list. I didn't know how to live anymore. I was literally taking it one day at a time, every day another day on the tightrope. I didn't know myself anymore. I didn't like the things I used to. I couldn't take comfort in the things I used to take comfort in. I felt like a shell, a hollow walking shell. And work was the worst. They didn't know about my condition. Those first few therapy appointments took place out of office hours. I knew I wouldn't be that lucky twice. Didn't have to tell HR, tell my boss. I don't know how I'm going to do that. I'm holding it together or I'm not. And if I'm talking about it, I'm not holding it together. I'm just a complete mess and I don't want to be like that. Not at work, not with the people I work with. They don't understand, do they? Depression, anxiety, sadness, shyness. It's not real to them. You should just pull yourself together. Don't be stupid. Get a grip. Cheer up. Man up. Because being told things like that, it really helps, doesn't it? It really, really helps. So I was back at the doctors again, in the waiting room again. They were keeping tabs on me, even though not much had changed. I was still waiting for the NHS to fit me in whenever they could get around to me again. When I finally get my name called, I enter the office and Dr Lund is there waiting. He's a big man, not fat, but square-faced and big-shouldered. He's good at listening, but it's become apparent as the weeks have gone by that that's all he really knows how to do. I waffle and moan for ten minutes, telling him about how hard it is to get out of bed, how the depression has me feeling like a walking corpse. That kind of stuff worries him. We've talked about antidepressants before, but I've always said I don't want them. The side effects can be quite bad while your body gets accustomed to them. And there's a small chance that they could actually make you more depressed. That you could feel worse when you're hanging by a thread. That's a fucking frightening thing to hear. But it's not just that. There's the social stuff too. Like having a drink. When you're in England, you've got to have a drink, haven't you? There's got to be something wrong with you if you're not drinking. It's impossible to enjoy yourself if you're not having a drink. What's wrong with you? Dr Lund tells me you can drink. You just have to be careful. In all honesty, I don't really put up much of a fight. I've been in a state for months and it's been hard. Too hard. And with the therapy, it was finally looking like there was some light at the end of the tunnel. But that's gone again. For how long, I don't know. So I thought it was best to just give in and try. I'd say that they can't make things worse, though technically, of course, they could. But the doctor's good at reassuring me. Tells me it doesn't happen to everyone, and if you're prepared for side effects, you can deal with them. The pills are called citalopram hydrobromide. Good for depression, anxiety, and social phobia. Take one a day for a week and then increase the dosage to two. I get my prescription, but I put off going to the pharmacy. There was still such a hard mountain to climb. Taking pills means admitting you're sick, and almost like throwing away any chance of you maintaining a normal life, accepting once and for all that that can never happen. I never wanted to be the kind of person who was dependent on tablets, dependent on drugs. I used an upcoming works party as an excuse to wait, as there'd be drinking involved. It was Anya's birthday. She sits just a few rows away from me in the office. She's always so damn upbeat. When you're in a foul mood, she can be hard to take because it's like shouting at a little girl or a kitten. She makes me feel bad about being miserable. Everything's so damn easy for her. She's popular and gets on with people easily. Everyone likes Anya. Especially me. I'm in love with her. Yeah, let's get this part of the story over with. She's so damn uninhibited. 
I didn't have to work so hard when she's there. Sometimes I used to wait around the office at the end of the day so that I could walk to the station with her. Not that I ever had a chance with her. I don't think she dates men. She was going out with this fitness instructor chick at the time. But just to connect with someone, have a conversation, a proper conversation. Not just small talk, all phony and bland and put on. But that was earlier on. The team has got much bigger and she made other friends and started spending more time with them. And I found myself getting jealous. I thought we had some kind of special friendship. That's how much I invest in these little moments of closeness. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Sometimes I find myself resenting her. I need her, but she doesn't need me. I was so easily replaced with others. I meant so little to her. We weren't close at all. But it was her birthday and I went along with the rest of the team. And I had a few drinks and had an okay time. It's not like I'm a complete social wreck. I can make a decent stab at it sometimes. If the situation is right and there are people there who I can connect with. That's mainly people in my team who I know and can work out and understand. Others in the office, they're harder. Drinking helps in a way. I'm certainly less self-conscious, certainly less reserved. But I sort of blunder in and become overbearing. I think people probably find me annoying or a bit much. I don't know, I'm really not a good judge. Let's face it. I'm hard on myself about everything. I can make people laugh, that's something I suppose. I stay quite late, but when members of my own team start filtering away, I see it's time for me to move on. Without my colleagues to lean on, I become a ghost in the room, flittering from one group to another and then eventually with few people at all to talk to. Anya has a variety of her own friends there. She's kind of swamped with them. I don't know who they are, how to talk to them or approach them. I resist the temptation to vanish into the night without saying anything. After a suitable moment or two of preparation, I go over and say goodbye and then I venture into the cold and walk back to Liverpool Street Station alone. I always assess and judge these situations, hold a behavioural review in my head afterwards. I do it on the train and on the way home. I try to stop myself, but I can't help it. I obsess over the minutiae of the evening, the conversations that went well, the things that didn't. Did they take that comment the way I meant it? Did I buy the right number of drinks? Did they see me start to sweat when I made that joke? And then it keeps me awake when I try to sleep, all this stupid obsessiveness. I wanted to stop, but I can't. I felt terrible the next morning, absolutely terrible. My head was ringing and I felt low, really low. When you've got no one to pretend you're happy to, you're just alone with your own misery. I found that pack of pills and I took the plunge. It was a big deal, a big moment. But so often in life it was anticlimactic. Nothing actually changed. They take a while to build up in your system, so you take a low dosage at first to let your body adapt to them. The weekend went by without much achieved, much done. I went through the week quietly as normal, haunting the office as usual, avoiding contact with others outside my usual sphere, unless I could help it. Eating my lunch with my team, making the odd joke, pretending all was normal, walking to the station with Anya on the days she wasn't doing something else, and missing her on the days when she was busy. It was another pointless week lived day by day, empty and without meaning. Another week survived, another one lived through. The following Saturday up the dosage as recommended, one in the morning and one in the evening. Immediate impact was zero. I felt no different, no less low, no less heavy. Presumably it needed time to take effect. Besides being a little drowsy, they seemed to be doing nothing. The next week started like any other, one difficult day after another to face. But it was on a Tuesday, I think, that everything suddenly changed. I was in Liverpool Street Station, coming up out of the tube and walking into the main area of the station. And as I was walking, I saw a shape, 
I barely saw it at the time, and I don't think I'd have thought much about it if it wasn't for what happened later. But there was a grey shadow. I noticed it just out of the corner of my eye, moving amongst a crowd of people pushing through the ticket barriers. When I looked closer, I saw there was nothing. I thought it must have been a glare, a trick of the light, or just a strange shade cast by my tired eyes at that early hour. I thought little of it at the time. But it was the same day, that lunchtime, when I was doing one of my long walks, trying to get out of the stuffy office. And as I'm walking through the street, this guy bumps into me, knocks my shoulder, doesn't apologise or anything. This is the city after all. The place is diseased with tossers. I look back at him as if almost to shout after him, although normally I bottle it. But when I see him, he's just passing around a corner out of sight, and there's this thing following him, another grey shadow, just like the one I'd seen at the station. It's hard to describe because it's not like a firm shape, more like a fuzz, a mass of moving static like you get from an old TV. The two events connect in my head, so I turn and I go after him. I move quick and turn the corner, and the street is empty. No grey ghost, just this guy. It's like a back street between buildings. This guy, this tall, arrogant-looking asshole. He hears my souls on the pavement. He just turns to glance at me just for a second, then carries on. Something's wrong, I know it. I definitely saw something. But I'm not sure what it means. Have I imagined it? Of course I have, and immediately I think of the medication. I check online back at the office. Are hallucinations part of the side effects? They just say something about blurred vision. Could that be it? I try not to panic. It's unsettling, but not such a big deal. I have to quickly click away from the page as Anya comes over, asking for me to check her work. She sees I'm looking a bit pale, and I pretend there's nothing wrong. It's hard talking to someone when you prefer that it left you alone. Not because you don't like them, because you like them more than they'd want to deal with. It keeps my mind off the pills and problems, at least. There are some compliance issues to sort out, which keeps me occupied. And then the day ends and I go home. I thought a little about the next pill before I took it ahead of dinner, thinking about the grey shapes I'd seen in the morning. Peculiar for sure. But as I'd apparently come to no harm, I took the pill anyway, assuming this effect would pass. It was another day. I'd almost forgotten about the day before, although I generally don't sleep very well, so I'm never at my best early on. That's why it takes me by surprise as I enter Liverpool Street Station and see them. They're everywhere. Five, six, seven of them. The grey shapes, the living shadows. They follow people. They linger after them as they walk, talk, eat, push and shove. They creep and stalk behind them, like a malicious, malignant shadow. I stand still and I watch them. They're hard to look at, like a bright light. You can't fix your eyes on them. It hurts. You want to look away. They're everywhere. I stand still, dead still, watching them, scanning the station. There are more, on the upper level, on the platform, queuing in the shops. My heart starts to beat fast, my hands tremble, my anxiety hits overdrive. I shake my head, they're not real, they're not real. I take a deep breath, I screw up my eyes, close them tight, drop my head, I count to five. And slowly I open them and lift up my head. Someone knocks right into me without apology, as usual. I nearly leap out of my skin in fear. They look back at me. But this isn't enough to make them want to apologise, and they carry on. My attention has been briefly distracted. I survey the station again, and now everything seems normal. Just the usual sea of people flushing in and out. I relax just a little. It is just a hallucination. Cause to be concerned, but not to panic. But then I get this hiss in my ear. It's high-pitched, like tinnitus. I look behind me, and there's one there looming over me. It's taller than me. I just glance at it. The sight of it swamps my vision. 
I almost scream and I take off, rush across the station to the escalators up to the street, shoving and pushing my way out of there. When I arrive at the office, I'm a shivering, sweating mess, but no one notices. I barely have time to relax when I'm called over by one of the senior members of the team. Some oaf from upstairs has come up with his own creative and is trying to force it on the designers, and rather than tell him his ideas are retarded, I get dropped right in it. They want me to tell him it won't wash with legal, the hope being that he'll drop it if it's a legal issue and there'll be no need to go into why his ideas are terrible. That saves the creatives any hassle. How nice for them. Doesn't quit, though. I end up spending all morning raking through his rubbish. In his mind, rules are only there to be circumvented. Heaven forbid he should consider that they're there to protect the world from the likes of him. And I'm struggling to put up a fight because I'm a nervous wreck and stumbling over my words. But that's not a reason for him to consider stopping. That's a sign of weakness he can exploit. These bastards want to ride roughshod over everyone and they'll do anything to do it. When I get back to my team, they think it's so funny. But I don't take it well and snap at a few of them. This isn't the first time they've got me to do their dirty work. This creates a bad atmosphere in the office, for which I, of course, hold myself responsible. It's not my fault. I've every right to be angry. But it doesn't feel that way, and the instinctual persecution starts and takes me back on my emotional roller coaster. I can feel the pressure, the cork is slipping. When no one is looking, I creep down under my desk and curl myself up into a ball. No one can see me down there. No one knows I'm there. I don't know why, but I just needed to keep the world out. Just to hide myself away. I need to feel safe, protected. It doesn't really help. I've still got work to do. Deadlines to meet. If only I could just shut it all out. I must have been down there a whole hour, but no one noticed. I had to bite the bullet and get back to work. God knows how I got through it. My head was throbbing, my heart was beating. I felt like I was in a desperate fever. I ended up staying late. I knew there'd still be a tomorrow. I had to keep going, put food on the table. What else was I to do? I expected to be the only person left in the office, but just as I'm about to go, Anya's blonde head pops up in front of me. I thought she'd left hours ago, but apparently she was in a meeting that massively overran. She asks if I'm walking to the station. So we start off when she's prattling on about how a girlfriend's fitness club is doing so well, but I'm only half listening. My heart is beating fast as we approach the station. I don't know what I'm going to see when I get there and I'm scared. I want to tell her so badly, but I can't just lay it all down on her like that. What's she ever done to deserve my share of hell? We're not even close, not really. The crowds are still pouring into Liverpool Street, even at eight o'clock. As we approach the entrance, we notice there's some kind of confusion. The road in front is part blocked off. There's an ambulance and there's police. A car has stopped dead in the road. A crowd of people have gathered in front of it. There's been an accident. It looks like someone's been hit by a car. They're moving the crowd out of the way to get the trolley to the victim. The people part and we can just see him there, lying on the ground, barely covered with a blanket. My heart stops. It's the man I saw the day before, the one who pushed rudely past me on the street, the one who had the grey shadow following him. I scan the crowd for it. And there it is. The grey shadow is standing a few steps behind him, staring at him. For a moment it's as if the world stops. There are no sounds, no traffic. No herd of feet stamping across the pavement. No policemen trying to move people on. Even the shifting lights of the sirens seem to slow down. I look at the grey shade hovering over him. That high-pitched sound comes from nowhere and strikes my ears. It lifts its head up and fixes its gaze on me. It looks right at me. The grey shadow has seen me. It knows I can see it and it can see me. Its face is featureless, but I know it's staring right at me. 
and now moving towards me. Anya pokes me, asks me what's the matter. Am I all right? I say nothing, then take to my heels and shout, I've got to go! And I run into the station, down the escalator and into the main hall. But the place is swarming with them, more than before. There must be hundreds of them walking unseen amongst the crowds, stalking people without them knowing. I scan the whole station, spin round on the spot. They're everywhere. The high-pitched sound is getting stronger. It hurts. I cover my ears, close my eyes. I can't block it out. I open my eyes again. They're still all there, but now they've stopped. They've all stopped. They're not following any more. They're all still. And they're all looking at me. All of them. I'm stood in the middle of the station and they're watching me. The crowds are still moving, the people are oblivious, but the grey shadows have stopped and they're all staring at me. As if from nowhere I see one of them drift through the crowd straight towards me. It moves like the flickering surface of water. It comes right for me and no one else can see it except me. They know I can see them and now they're coming to get me. It gets bigger as it gets closer. I panic and I scream, NO! People in the station turn and look at me. I run. I run towards the barriers and leap over them. One of the station staff cries out after me, but I don't care. There's a train on the platform. It's packed, absolutely jam-packed. I jump on anyway. People sigh and grumble and hiss, for goodness sake, as I squash them further into the carriage, but I don't care. For once, I just don't damn well care. The alarm goes and the doors slide closed. I'm squashed against them so close that my breath steams up the window on the door. Turns out I'm on a train going to East London, almost exactly the opposite way from home. But it just doesn't matter. Then I panic. What if they're on the train with me? They're not stuck at Liverpool Street. If they're on the streets, they can be on the trains too. What if they're right here now with me? I look around but can't move much. I can't see past the people. For once the crowds are a good thing. I wait a few stops before getting off. I'm miles out, but glad of the distance. I don't dare go back to Liverpool Street. I hop on a bus that goes to Stratford and take the Jubilee line back through to Waterloo. It takes me hours, and the whole time I have the feeling I'm being watched, and that I'm being followed. I didn't see any of them. I didn't catch a glimpse of one of those grey ghosts for the entire journey back. But I couldn't shake the feeling. It felt like more than paranoia. It felt like instinct. It got worse as I got off the train and started walking home. The weather was terrible now, absolutely pouring it down. I was looking over my shoulder every few moments. I kept walking faster and faster. I got back home, slammed the door behind me and went upstairs to my flat. I lingered in the hall for a moment. I was at home, safe, but I had the urge to go to the window and see if anything had followed me back. I went to the window thinking I must be wrong, telling myself I'd imagined it and nothing had come after me. But I'd been right all the time. They were standing outside, four of them. The grey shades were out in front of my house. I'd led them home, taken them right to my door. I dropped to the floor, curled myself up against the wall and put my fist in my mouth. I'd taken them home with me, showed them where I lived. What were they? What did they want with me? Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. Today's story features in the book 14 New Ghost Stories, which is available for Amazon, iTunes and other book retailers. And if you'd like to read the latest new ghost stories, visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you've enjoyed listening, please support the podcast by leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. You can find out more about new ghost stories at my website, newghoststories.com and read the latest from me on Twitter by following at newghoststories. Tune into the next episode for the concluding part of Another Face in the Crowd.